This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Ideology and game design. Excavating Richard III. Elements of RPG style. And Black Herman. We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Conrad Kinch asks Ken and Robin. Do you think that the author's political or religious beliefs have an impact on the games that they write? Can you tell a game written by a Democrat from that written by a Republican? Do you think Sandy Peterson's Mormonism influenced Call of Cthulhu? Uh, Robin, I guess the question that springs immediately to mind is, can you tell that I'm a Republican by the games that I write? I cannot necessarily tell that you're a Republican, and often people who meet you in private conversation are shocked and appalled, at least before this podcast, to discover that you are a Republican. Uh, certain people's Political affiliations and, I guess, broader philosophical outlooks can certainly be perceived through their work. And inasmuch as uh, gaming is writing, and it is uh, writing that expresses something about the world, uh, some might even say that it is a form of art, uh, by your very nature of that process, you are going to express things about your worldview, whether you mean to or not. You may uh, one might, uh, rather than can might, you might express elements of your worldview, uh, your gender politics, your economic politics, whatever form of politics you have unconsciously, or you can be aware of it and express it consciously. Uh, certainly, you can point to the work of writers who are very consciously political in their role-playing or gaming work. Uh, for example, Ray Winninger's Underground uh, very much comes out of the sort of lefty punk tradition in its satire of uh, Reaganism and Bush One-ism and its uh, satirical approach to corporate-built war veteran uh, superheroes. It has a very sort of fatalistic, scathing uh, worldview and was very surprising in the extent to which it was willing to be very sharply, partisanly political in uh a context where we're not used to that extent of foregrounding uh, people's uh, politics. Uh, Jonathan Tweet's uh, interestingly complex worldview can certainly be found in his work, particularly in Over the Edge, and uh, to a lesser extent in his uh, sort of nightmare-themed collectible miniatures game, uh, Dreamscape. And uh, you can see in that, for example, both that he is a... Uh, a man of the progressive left, but also a, a biological determinist to a, a significant extent. And you can see those things uh, explicitly expressed in uh, the text and also sort of reverberating out through the, the broader style of the uh, worlds that he chooses to portray. Yeah, but I guess the uh, question is, given that, uh, as you say, if if you write a game that has any uh, resonance with the world as it is experienced or the world as it is lived, you're going to wind up uh, casting it the way that you see the world as it is experienced or as it is lived, either as, you know, just sort of a, uh, a notional mirror of your perception or as an explicitly political act. Do you think that um, there's any uh, political component to to game design? I mean, can you tell uh, uh, Jason Bullman's uh, politics by his uh, tweaks to 3.5 for Pathfinder? Or can you tell uh, Greg Stafford's politics by the uh, dice engine of Ghostbusters? I think that you have to... It's difficult, first of all, to find someone's politics in their refinement of an existing game design. So the question, I think, for uh, Pathfinder or anything else that it's related to, you would have to go back to the original assumptions of the original designers, and you'd have to find something that sharply diverged from that uh, for someone adding to the D&D &D corpus. So certainly D&D &D itself has a politic 
about the importance of gathering wealth and power by knocking down doors and uh, and fighting people. Uh, there is a certainly a Marxist analysis to be made about the assumptions there. Uh, certainly, I don't think that that was intended as a metaphor for predatory capitalism or for colonialism or whatever it is that you want to see it as a model for, but it doesn't urge you to stop and question the fact that you are progressing through uh, acquisition of wealth and through violence. Uh, that certainly expresses a worldview, and that worldview is contained in the rules mechanics for experience points, for example. But I think that those examples are not uh, rich on the ground. I think it's hard to you know, for example, look at the die pool mechanic from Ghostbusters and say that this is obviously an expression of uh, Greg Stafford or, or Lynn Willis's uh, communitarian uh, political philosophy, for example. Yeah, I think the um, I, I think there's interesting notions uh, as we get into the indie game scene of the notion of indie game design itself as a political act, much like you know the the punks with the DIY uh, ethos as a political ethos. Um, you saw a, a sort of a politicization of the belief that uh, indie games uh, have a, a noble and special purpose that uh, corporate or traditionally uh, produced games don't, uh, leaving aside the ludicrous notion that uh, anything produced by uh, five guys in the Steve Jackson games office is a corporate game. Um, do you, do you see the act of game creation as a uh, political act itself? Well, the act of forming a community is certainly a political act. And whenever you have a group of people form a community around an aesthetic, and this doesn't extend just to the indie game crowd, but for example, to the old school crowd or uh, whatever group of people who want to get together and say that we like this style of game so much that we're going to create a lexicon, a vocabulary to describe it, which... Uh, we are going to pretend is objective, but under the surface is really just a manifesto for our preferred style of play. And we're going to define it in a way that welcomes people to either join us or, or fight us. And we are going to explicitly or implicitly say that what we are doing is more valuable or interesting than what other people are doing. You are engaged in the core human political activity, which is of uh, deciding who is in uh, the community and who is outside the community. And that has a level of sort of scenesterism to it, but that is the way that all tribes and communities uh, operate. Yeah, the um, I, I'm not necessarily talking about the action of uh, forming a community, which is, you know, as you, as you point out, by its nature, a political act, but the notion that uh, the nature of the game design that you produce or the nature of the production of the game design that you police is an act with political relevance to a, sort of a larger politic, a you know, a, a, either the the notion of the relationship between art and society, or the notion of the relationship between uh, workers and the means of production, or whatever. And I guess that you know, again, if if one wants to be Marxist, you can say that any economic act is also a political act. But I think that in terms of drawing out uh, political or religious beliefs from the game you have to look less at the means of production and more at the content of the thing produced. And there I think you're on slightly uh, skinnier grounds. I mean, certainly if you look at uh, uh, certainly a later Ron Edwards game, there's a strong political content to, uh, because he's writing uh, the games to correct uh, uh, faults in other people's perception of various genres and cast those, those faults in political terms. Vincent Baker's um, uh, Dogs in the Vineyard is, of course, a classic um, sort of uh, Mormon myth. And uh, I guess Conrad's original question about Call of Cthulhu would be to what degree that is also a Mormon myth. I'm not sure how you would separate the Mormon myth of an ancient America with hidden secrets that reveal a transcendent reality from the Lovecraftian myth of the same thing, except that the Lovecraftian myth, of course, is Maltheist, and the Mormon myth is um, uh, um, whatever the opposite, you know, <laughs> eutheist. Uh, so I, th I think that certainly if one has been steeped in uh, Mormon belief and Mormon culture, one has a more instinctive grasp on that kind of subject matter, perhaps, but that's somewhat like saying that only Catholics should be writing vampire. 
because only they have the unique conflations of, of blood and sin that uh, really require proper vampire novels. Well, and the thing about Call of Cthulhu is that you are attempting to realize someone else's vision and translate it into a role-playing format. And so, obviously, there are people from all across the spectrum who are attracted to the work of Lovecraft, remove from it its original political content, which, on the grounds of it being completely loathsome, and then try to keep the rest. And so, the fact that someone is drawn to Lovecraft in the first place, it's hard to uh, see how uh, Sandy's approach to it as a Mormon is different from my approach to it as an unbeliever, as opposed to your uh, approach to it as a, as a Republican. <laughs> and so I think Calvinist would probably be the more apropos uh, yes, I parallel was, there. I, I knew that I was going to get whatever descriptive term wrong. And so I veered, veered off in the other direction before I hit a deer on the side of the road. Yeah. Um, and so I, I mean, certainly Calvinism of those three things makes more sense as a way of approaching Lovecraft. I guess being an unbeliever also is a way of approaching Lovecraft, since he himself was an unbeliever who wrote about crazy gods as a metaphor for the indifference of the universe. But the in that case, it's an a, act of adapting someone else's vision and beyond the point of deciding to do that in the first place and, you know, taking out all the the, the racism and uh, uh, cultural supremacy and so forth, that you are uh, probably not revealing as much about yourself as you do when you, for example, create a new setting. And certainly, for example, you know, I can see my own politics in some of the setting work that I create, even though I'm not setting out to convince people to subscribe to my political views, because I shouldn't think that's essentially... Uh, the more it, I think that's folly in the first place, mostly. And to the extent one is trying to convince people, one should not do it overtly, but rather covertly. Um, so, but for example, in the world of Ashen Stars, it's a world of tough choices, and that's how I see the world of politics. Is that although there are certain values that you want to work towards, that all too often we uh, pick one side of the agenda or the other side and just sort of adopt one half of it when the real difficulties of making a society that we want to live in are a set of difficulties about uh, trade-offs and tough choices and no-win situations or uh, harm reduction and so forth. And so uh, certainly it has been observed both of my GMing style and of some of the settings that I create is that they are worlds of uh, no-win situations or worlds of amb ambiguity where sometimes it's difficult to find the bright line between the good guy and the bad guy. Yeah, and I think that in, in that respect, we should also, of course, separate out the ability to talk politically about a work with the work's inherent politics. I mean, if, as you intimate, role-playing games can approach art, art, by definition, can be approached by humans from all manner of perspectives. I mean... Uh, the fact that uh, uh, Bram Stoker was a was a home rule uh, liberal does not mean you can't approach um, Dracula as a Marxist text, or conversely, as a Burkean reactionary text. Uh, there, all kinds of readings of of a great work of literature are possible, just like all kinds of readings in theory of something like Over the Edge might be possible. A, a great uh, you know, seminal work of, of both game design and, and world building. So uh, while I think you're right that you can certainly tease out um, or less than tease out some of Jonathan's uh, more um, uh, idiosyncratic beliefs by, by looking at that, I think you can also um, draw on all, all kinds of uh, political analysis to look at what's going on in Over the Edge. And certainly it's a, it's a rich enough uh, universe that whatever you're looking for, you're going to find there. And that's one of the hazards of writing specifically toward expressing your own political point of view is that as an artist, you are narrowing your possible interpretations of your work to one thing. And that becomes a less rich, less interesting thing. And that becomes more of a polemic. And I'm not opposed to polemics, but I think they should exist in essay form more than in a dramatic or artistic form. And that's one of the uh, problems, for example, of a lot of political dramas that are trying to express a issue-oriented point of view, one of the reasons that they are frequently disappointing is not just necessarily that they are in the wrong format, 
but that, for example, drama assumes a tug-of-war between opposed values, neither which of one is necessarily superior to the other. And if you're writing a scene in which a character gives an impassioned political speech expressing your point of view, and the other character is just there to oppose that, you've stacked the deck. And that's really uh, more melodrama than drama. And so if uh, the writer is not aware of that and does not work skillfully around that or does not find another point of human drama and conflict uh, over which to, you know, sort of have the politics going on in the background, that's why you're going to have a, a disappointing work. So that although I think it is interesting to consider what politics a piece, piece of role-playing work urges you to consider and encounter, that the ones that answer their own questions for themselves are the ones that are uh, ultimately going to be less interesting and less engaging. And of course, the politics of the designer uh, do not govern the experience, just as the design does not govern the experience. If there is a politics in play in a role-playing session, it will be the politics both interpersonal and agenda-driven of the people there at the table so that you can have a group of people sit down together who are uh, very uncomfortable uh, with the inherent politics of Call of Cthulhu and have a great and exciting and fun game that reveals something about them. And uh, you could conversely have a group of people who are creepily comfortable with some of the aspects of it, and they can have a game that is very... Uh, satisfying, although perhaps an outside observer might be somewhat troubled by uh, some of the things that happen in that game. Well, I mean, I think outside observers are going to be troubled by virtually anything that happens in a role-playing session, regardless of the politics. Yes. There's also, I guess, the... Uh, I guess it, it, it goes to your point of, is this setting dramatic or is it melodramatic? And certainly, melodrama makes for great story, and I think role-playing games are among the, the keys that they're tuned to work really well in is melodrama. So, for example, you know, you, you don't have to, you know, beat yourself up over whether or not orcs are good or bad. Orcs are bad. You the, the game becomes the challenge and the excitement and the heroism of killing a whole bunch of orcs or killing orcs under dangerous circumstances or whatever it happens to be. Uh, likewise, you know, in, uh, say, in, day, in my Day After Ragnarok, I don't, you know, mince any words about the theory that, say, Stalin and the Nazis are bad, but I don't suppose that that's terribly uh, controversial either. It's, it's not a giant limb to uh, go out on. No. And the, the and the purpose of of that setting is deliberately to create a pulp style world in which uh, the the you know the good and the and the bad the right and the wrong are relatively you know easy to see if you want to play in that register while the sort of uh, Lawsian uh, tough questions good government stuff can be played out if you're playing a more um, rebuilding after the apocalypse type uh, game which the setting supports but it supports on sort of the uh, on the, on the down low, on, on an infra note as opposed to a supra note. Right. And if you want to test the politics of any fantasy uh, role-playing setting, look at the treatment of orcs, because whether you want to just sort of redline it away or not, there's an unmistakable political valence to having a race of people who are inherently evil and who we ought to always kill. And so uh, at different times in the history of D&D &D and different uh, games, that are offshoots of D&D, there have been different efforts to tackle the ugly symbolism behind that and to uh, deal with it in various ways. And the extent to which the uh, designers of the setting are at least cognizant of those issues or whether they wish to be uh, apolitical, that is, make a political statement that they don't want to cop to, you can find in exactly how they handle that question. Okay, I think that in uh, in our traditional fashion, we have just finished one uh, hut to see the door to another one looming, so we'd better get out of this one before uh, we get into the question of the soul of the orc. So this week, our history-bending hut is located precariously on the edge of a car park in Leicester, England, uh, from which the remains of Richard III were uh, several months ago disinterred and have now been fairly conclusively identified as those of Richard III. Uh, having been to Leicester, I can attest that under a car park is one of the more pleasant views of it. <laughs> um, 
And I guess the, the first question is, what uh, does this discovery prompt us to think about history? And then the second, perhaps more interesting question is, what ways can we riff off of this story and create inspiration for various scenarios in various genres? So, uh, Ken, I guess the thing that this brings up for me is the phenomenon of the Richard III Society, the group of people who uh, root for Richard III, who is famously uh, propagandized against in Shakespeare's uh, famous play of the same name. It should be no surprise that uh, he made the Tudors the good guys, and therefore the Plantagenets <laughs> the bad guys. Uh, almost as though they were paying his salary. <laughs> almost as if. Uh, and, uh, of course, his very vivid portrayal of Richard III is the one that has gone down in history, and we know that it is uh, not quite accurate. And so there's a society built to rectify the image of Richard III, but uh, really, I think, you know, in a contest between late medieval lords fighting each other for control of a country, that it's really probably less a matter of good guys and bad guys than of uh, crips and bloods. So what uh, revisionist thoughts do you have about the reputation of Richard III? Well, I will say that um, uh, just as uh, every uh, the, 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 the great Arab calligraphers would put a... Uh, uh, a, a deliberate uh, extra diacritical mark or a deliberate error into their copies of the Quran so that they would not be seen to uh, engage in hubris. Um, I have introduced into my thinking a, uh, a position that does not uh, hold uh, a great deal of water. Um, and I am pretty much a Ricardian and have been ever since I read The Daughter of Time by Josephine Tay, who is a mystery writer, all of whose mysteries are worth reading, but The Daughter of Time is a bravura mystery about uh, a, her detective who, while lying flat on his back in a hospital bedroom, solves the mystery of the murder of the princes in the tower, and it will come as no surprise, uh, spoilers notwithstanding, to find out that Richard III was framed by the filthy tutors. And having read that and having more uh, uh, sort of imbibed its approach to history as uh, very much um, uh, written by the victors as very much a collection of propagandas, uh, which you must pile up and sift through to ever attempt to find uh, the true answer. Um, I, I think that I, you know, was, as, as, you know, to uh, segue from the previous segment, philosophically and politically interested in that. And then it's just a cracking good novel, and it has, and it did a great deal of uh, the research. And I believe that there was a, um, uh, a chronicle that was discovered that invalidates one of the central premises of the novel after it was written, but uh, the psychology of the story is still fairly strong, and so I, th I think you uh, can be a Ricardian, as I am, without necessarily believing that he was um, uh, the second coming of King Arthur and pure as the driven snow. So uh, you are of the Ricardian variety that simply holds that he was no worse than those who'd done him in. Right, and that uh, very possibly he was considerably better than Henry Tudor, which again is not a high bar. Um, as for the specific uh, fate of the princes in the tower, I maintain a... Uh, a, a conspiracy-minded agnosticism that would infuriate me in any other context. <laughs> Are you containing multitudes again, Ken? Yes, I am. I am. And it, all Americans must contain multitudes. Ralph Waldo Emerson said so. Uh, and so, therefore, um, I, I find myself as I, you know, read these stories, uh, you know, engaged and excited, much like all the Ricardians. I think that the Ricardian Society did a full court press in the BBC and the Guardian. I haven't read a single piece in this flurry that was written by sort of an orthodox historian of the topic. So I think they're trying to mount a, a last minute charge and win the Battle of Bosworth Field all over again. I doubt, sadly, that he's going to be laid to rest in state in Westminster Abbey anytime soon, but it would be great fun. So what does this uh, show us other than the fact that if you have a really cool, compelling story that brings history to life that people will still be interested in it. I, I think that's, you know, th that's a good chunk of what it shows us. I think it sort of is a great indication of the degree to which things that you thought were, were dead and settled long ago can sort of spring up and have at the very least a pop cultural impact. And who knows, you know, uh, politics being what they are, uh, whether the argument over whether to bury uh, Richard at uh, Leicester Cathedral or York Minster or wherever is going to cause some degree of, of uh, you know, sectarian uh, difference of, of whatever sort, or at the very least drive 
people to, you know, again, think maybe a little more critically about the monarchy as an institution. Well, it will be a nice distraction from the uh, assaults on the uh, British education system. So um, then the question before us is how do we rip this from the headlines into a cool scenario? So we've got a uh, dead king of dire reputation who has... uh, just been uh, disinterred. We've used computer modeling to look exactly, to find out exactly what his uh, uh, face looks like. A, a slightly less impressive feat when you realize that there are surviving portraits of Richard III that pretty much also look like what his face looked like. Although the 3D model version does look a little bit more like John Delancey than the portraits It, it looks creepier, certainly. So yes. that's something. Um, well, obviously, and, and that the achievement was not in figuring out what he, what he looks like, but in matching him to the yeah. uh, paintings mm-hmm. uh, and helping to clinch the identification. So, dead king, uh, disinterred, uh, what does that uh, suggest for us uh, scenario-wise? The obvious thing is uh, to take a ghost story angle where uh, his grievances are disinterred along uh, with him, and uh, perhaps the anti-Ricardian forces uh, start experiencing visitations, which the player characters must then somehow thwart. Yeah, a series of um, uh, mysterious ghostly murders that pattern themselves after the murders in uh, Shakespeare's play. So you'll find a um, <laughs> Alison Weir uh, drowned in a butt of Malmsey or something like that. And then the question being, of course, if Richard is really innocent, as us Ricardian investigators believe, why would he be carrying out these horrible Tudor slander ghost murders? And is it really him that's carrying it out? Or was there some other thing that was uh, dug up from the battle that uh, Richard died saving us from? Uh, that gives us another possibility. And, and then, of course, if you want to translate to uh, different genres, uh, the inspiration for uh, uh, having a dead king uh, that you want to disinter can then become the object of your quest. You can make uh, the bones of your Richard analog, the MacGuffin, for example, for a uh, fantasy uh, quest. You might have a uh, political faction who want to revive the old uh, lineage of the kings that were uh, was cut cruelly short uh, several uh, centuries ago, and so in order to make this ritually possible in your magical world, you have to go and uh, literally locate and unbury and bring back to sunlight the remains of the last king of the old line. So that could uh, give you, uh, first of all, your basic standard dungeon quest where you're going to uh, go find something underground and fight the random monsters who uh, happen to live there and then bring it back out. Or you could add the doubled situation of the uh, political intrigue where you are trying to go and get the MacGuffin and there's a rival group of people who are trying to keep the MacGuffin uh, from you. Or you could do a fantasy version of the uh, political intrigue that results back in the capital after the remains are disinterred and yet you have the uh, dispute that you mentioned earlier as to where uh, the real Richard III would be buried, while well, in a magical universe that could uh, take on real political impact and uh, crystallize the conflict between two actual uh, power factions. I, uh, as you were talking, I had a, a vision of a terrific uh, Plantagenet boys from Brazil, where a, a group of, of eccentric uh, people, uh, either you know the the, the Priore de Sion. Uh, who have convinced themselves the Plantagenets uh, in uh, in England are also the bloodline of Christ, or you have vampires who who knew uh, Richard when he was alive, uh, who have some agenda, but that you remove DNA from Richard's skeleton and then they're growing uh, Plantagenet heirs all around the all around the world in some bizarre secret uh, uh, policy, either just because they you know that the, now they can sacrifice a king anytime they need magic to happen which obviously makes the magic way more powerful, or they want to bring Richard III back in sort of a, you know, uh, you know, uh, Omen 3 type scenario where he runs for prime minister and it's all going to happen over again unless the player characters can stop it. I will point out, uh, while we're talking about bones of kings of ill repute, or at least heads of state of ill repute, that uh, Dracula's skeleton... Uh, if it was Dracula's skeleton that was found in the door, door frame of Snegov Monastery, apparently vanished, Dracula and Richard III being contemporaries. So you have perhaps a league of extraordinary skeletons out there uh, uh, plotting uh, revenge against those who introduced their good name. Uh, and well, indeed, we know that uh, the real Richard probably had scoliosis, uh, not necessarily a huge hump 
hunchback and withered arm as ham actors in popular imagination would prefer to have it. But then you could use that as a uh, another sort of key off the the DNA extraction thing. Maybe you're not using the DNA to clone more Richards, but that there was something inhuman in him, something monstrous that was coming out, and that uh, Henry Tudor belabored him with a, a sharp instrument in order to dispatch forever. And now uh, with DNA technology, uh, whoever has done that DNA test can extract that inhuman element and perhaps uh, grow a new generation of monsters. And that could uh, be what your modern day uh, special agents against the occult are trying to prevent. Yeah, that, that it's a um, uh, it's like the, uh, the the beast of Glom's castle, the the the, the guilt of the Windsors, um, and then you have the these two uh, horrific monstrosities that have been competing for the English crown uh, over the millennia, and one of them finally got you know whacked and buried in Bosworth Field, and now it's back and uh, coming after uh, the the architecture of, of British conspiratorial power. <laughs> Speaking of dubious politics. <laughs> uh, so I think we have uh, uh, bent history's frame, at least as much as uh, the actual Richard III's frame was bent, and uh, can consider this a job well done. Reassuring chutter of IBM's selectric keys opens a whole new hut. A hut that is decorated with um, uh, cats and uh, distracting uh, calendars and so many of the accoutrements of the writing lifestyle that it can only be known as the hut where we know how to write good. And in How to Write Good, it will be demonstrated the methodology by which we very, very write good. Robin? So I thought that we would uh, initiate this segment and talk a bit about uh, the writing life, particularly writing for uh, role-playing game products. If you go to a, a gaming seminar uh, most places, uh, not just Gen Con, but uh, smaller game conventions, there's a point at halfway through any Q&A where uh, the question of how to get started writing role-playing stuff comes up. And I thought that before we deal with that question, the how-to, the careerist stuff, which involves us saying some kind of depressing things, uh, that I would start off with the question of writing style. And this hopefully is something that can appeal more broadly to other people listening to this podcast, because uh, learning to uh, write skillfully, which is a matter of A, uh, doing it a lot, getting practice in it, B, reading a lot of other stuff and getting a sense of what is a good style, and then C, learning a, a few uh, little tricks that really help you boost your style is something that can stand you in good stead, whether you want to be a writer of any stripe or even just someone who occasionally has to write a business email or write a complaint letter, that being able to uh, write skillfully is a, a huge advantage. But I thought that, first of all, that we would talk about the general challenges of writing in the role-playing field, because there is a very definite role-playing style, uh, which uh, I would uh, and will argue uh, involves some bad habits that you can improve your work by trimming out, but that addresses the unique challenges of writing for role-playing games. Uh, one of these challenges, for example, is the challenge of the future contingent without a known protagonist. When you are writing a role-playing adventure, you are writing about something that may or may not happen in the future to someone whose details you know very little about. You know that they are an adventurer of whatever stripe, given what the basic constraints of whatever game it is that you're looking at. So he's a occult investigator or a dungeon looter or a a space cop or whatever it is, but you don't know the gender of the character, you don't know their backgrounds, you don't know their motivations, and you're just trying to provide for the uh, GM a blueprint of possible events that may happen. And so, for example, this uh, brings us the problem of the word uh, will, that you can uh, trim out uh, the word will from your sentences in a role-playing adventure and immediately sharpen those sentences. So uh, the typical sentence, uh, for example, is uh, if the adventurers go down into this 
basement, they will see a separating force in the corner. And if you just cut out the word will, if the adventurers go down in the basement, they see a separating force in the corner. You've just by trimming out that very simple, short, little dead word that would otherwise probably recur over and over in your adventure text, you've immediately made it stronger. And this, oddly enough, is a uh, writing infelicity that is very difficult to train yourself out of. And even I find myself, after all of these years, when I am in the rewriting phase, catching instances of it and eliminating it. But uh, in terms of something that's super easy to do and gives you an immediate bang for your buck in tightening your prose and making your action words more active, it's one of the first uh, steps that you can take in order to make your writing more vivid and colorful and immediate, and also if you are trying to uh, impress a, a client that you are writing for, make yourself seem uh, professional. Yeah, I think um, the the will factor is is a is a big strong one. My very first manuscript, uh, GURPS Alternate Earths one, when we turned it in, uh, our, my editor Susan Pinsano came back and said, "I'm not saying rewrite the book in E prime, but try everywhere you can to remove the verb to be and any of its cognates and recast the sentence any way that you uh, that you that, that you think it will work better." And that's another thing that it, it you know, you know, uh, the orc is angry is a perfectly sound, you would think, uh, crisp, uh, descriptive sentence. But the trouble is that is is a fundamentally inert verb. It doesn't do anything. Uh, whereas if you want to, um, uh, you, you can you can flavor that up all kinds of ways. You can say uh, noisy investigators anger the orc. And now something has happened to to draw a thing or angry, comma, the, the orc uh, swings his mattock at you, or, or something like that, uh, an action has to take place. Yeah, and, and one f construction that you'll often find, for example, is, you know, the empire is monitoring the activities of the rebels, mm -hmm. and if you see that pairing with a to-be verb and an action verb, well, almost always you can just eliminate the to be verb and go with the action verb and make that propel the sentence. So it's the, the empire monitors the activities of the rebels. And that's immediately a much stronger sentence. Now you can't always get away with uh, eliminating to be. Sometimes you can't make a sentence uh, revolve around an action verb without tormenting all the rest of the syntax around it. But that's all the more reason to eliminate every other instance of it that you can possibly eliminate. Right. Yeah. It's like if you had a whole uh, room full of pillars, you can probably knock out 90% uh, of them without taking out the load-bearing ones that are actually holding up the ceiling. And then you can see across the damn room, which is sort of the point of writing uh, technical material, which role-playing games uh, scenarios and mechanics pretty much are. Another comment that I would make to uh, everyone, whether you're writing uh, fiction or role-playing games or business letters, is... Uh, your sentences are probably too long. Uh, writing is thinking. Uh, writing is having clear thoughts and expressing them. And we have a habit when we're first thinking our rough thoughts onto the uh, page or on the screen, as it were, of packing too many thoughts into one sentence. And so it's fine, perhaps in the initial write phase, to have a lot of different thoughts jammed together and, and mushed uh, into close confines with various conjunctions, but once you go through, you want to unpack those, uh, and once you start unpacking your overlong sentences, you may find that you have other problems. For example, that your uh, thoughts are not ordered in what is exactly the best order to present them to the reader, but have just sort of been laid down pell-mell. And that's a, a huge uh, key part of writing, is having clear thoughts, putting them in the right order, and expressing them uh, in easily understood uh, thoughtlets, uh, which we know as sentences. Yes. And uh, this is, of course, right on the surface of Robin's mind because he has just finished editing something that I turned into him. So uh, I am one of those people that uh, imbibed uh, Lovecraft and uh, Bradbury and other ornate prose stylists at an, at an early age, Dumas, the 19th century British novelists, with their you know one-page long sentences. And I think that uh, my, my well- 
uh, has been uh, certainly flavored and perhaps Robin would say polluted by those influences ever since. And having uh, one super long sentence with a lot of stuff in it can be uh, an interesting, fun choice that sort of breaks up the sentence rhythm. You also don't want to have every sentence essentially the same length over the course of a long text because that is a samey, samey rhythm. It's sort of deadening. But if you are going to have a big portmanteau sentence, first of all, make sure that that's the the hill you want to die on, that that's the one that really does have to have all six of these different thoughts in sequence in it. And then around that, make sure you arrange it so that it's not two gigantic mega-colossi sentences, but you've got a, uh, a short one and then a medium one. And I'm... Uh, an aficionado of, you know, the, the short, shocking sentence every so often in order to kind of uh, wake the reader up and to create that sense of a, a varied rhythm. Uh, another habit that a lot of role-playing writers have, and there's a, a reason for this, uh, is the overuse of parenthesis. And uh, the reason for this, and there's a bunch of different writing problems that come out of this core reason is that you are trying to convey information about an often imaginary place or perhaps a real place that you are choosing to fictionalize in a game and you are trying to get a lot of information out in order to give a lot of choices to the GM and the players and so the fact that you're creating a lot of options and talking about a lot of different exceptions uh, tempts you to just sort of blurt it out there in a big explosion of thoughts. And so as uh, part of the overlong sentence, you often see a lot of use of uh, brackets, the hard parentheses, or the softer parentheses of something separated by M dashes. Now, uh, again, this is something that I'm not suggesting that you rid yourself of entirely, that when you absolutely need it, it's a perfectly valid and strong choice that provides a sense of rhythm and variety on the page, but if you pick up a any other work of nonfiction or essay uh, and look at the number of brackets that appear on it versus the number of brackets that appear in a role-playing book that has been edited by someone other than, than me and a few other sticklers, you will see a lot of parenthesis, and, and that is because there are so many different thoughts that come to mind as you're writing about this world, and uh, because you're trying to provide options and not foreclose them, you are also trying to describe to the reader a lot of different exceptions. I think that uh, a kindred tactic to use in terms of, um, uh, let, let's say, damping down the, um, uh, the flurry of world creation or world exploration to a, to a handy minimum is something that I picked up, I think, from you know t uh, Thomas Pynchon and Tim Powers, is to uh, never... Uh, give a general case where you can give one or two elusive examples and move on. And uh, that will not necessarily cut your word count at all, but what it will do is, A, make it a much more inviting place for someone to play. If you have said, all elves are um, uh, turn evil after their 400th birthday, that's different than saying, uh, in uh, the elf lands... Uh, both uh, Morgoth and Sebador uh, became uh, characteristically evil after their 400th birthday, and then you move on, you are still saying old elves should be watched out for, but you haven't closed off uh, pathways, and you've also forced yourself to provide two useful hooks, because it's like, well, are Morgoth alive? Is Sebador alive? Do they like each other? And you can start building out uh, your world with not, with not an awful lot more word count than simply saying all old elves are bad news. Right. Um, and that's an example of the, the bigger principle that the specific is always more powerful than the general, that something that is uh, vivid and, and precise is going to stay with your reader more than sort of a, a general essay-style statement. Now, occasionally you are going to have to make those essay-style statements, and as much as you can, just take as read the fact that people are going to create exceptions so that... Uh, if you see words like tends to or maybe or, you know, all these words that are basically where you're laying out a general rule, but then immediately saying that it's not a general rule or that it is a general rule with exceptions, you have to rely on the reader to some extent to supply their own exceptions. Because otherwise you just have a flabby manuscript full of uh, qualifiers. Yeah, and then the other uh, side of that coin or the other 
face on that die is the pointless intensifier. Something like very or much or quite or anything that does not actually add flavor but only adds another word in there. So the giant is very big is no more informative than the giant is big, and it's less informative than the giant's head uh, uh, scrapes the church tower. Because now we've added a church tower, and we've still got a sense of a very big giant, and we have a, a notion of how big he is without saying, the giant is 52 feet tall. Right. Which is its own kind of boring. Right. Or or sometimes you can actually, that sort of crazy precision can be uh, fun. Uh, for example, uh, you know, one of the kind of running gags in the uh, Esoterror material that's written from the point of view of the Ordo Ver Veritatis, the uh, good guys who are fighting this occult war in a uh, version of our real world, is that they're sort of a bureaucratic, technocratic inf uh organization and so they in some of those texts that will say well 58% of esoterrorists are uh suffering from this form of psychosis whereas uh our study suggests that only 32% of them uh have uh this neurosis and so that that's sort of flipping that on its head and being and making the precision uh part of the joke another uh connected thought to the idea of uh you know sort of meaningless uh, amplifying words like very is the overuse of rhetorical flourishes. This is again something that you will see in a lot of role-playing stuff that you don't see in other forms of writing, where in order to create an, a sense of excitement, the writer will uh, sort of go off on a stylistic limb and they'll say something like, you know, Magnus Force is a bad man. A very bad man. And occasionally if you do that, it is kind of fun and sort of points out the essential informality and sense of play behind role-playing writing. You know, the word play is right there in the middle. But Much as people try and choke it out. Yes. Uh, but a lot of people uh, who use those flourishes uh, use them too often. That uh, one of them on the page in, you know, one piece really carries a lot of power uh, and you can get away with. Uh, and But it has to be really, really well chosen and often for the people who do indulge in that, uh, I find that they overindulge in it, that it's basically a form of word spinning. And you want to look also for chunks of your text when you're reviewing it that you can tell that you were just sort of thinking to yourself on the page trying to get started, but have now just basically they're there that they pad your word count and they don't really say very much. And often the introductory chunk of any piece of writing, any section in a text, you can probably uh, cut out uh, the first few sentences, or at least your opening thought, and cut right to the meat of it. And once you get into the habit of doing that, once you get in the habit of doing all of these things or looking out for all of these issues, eventually you'll start to do them unconsciously and you won't need to revise yourself during the second pass because you're thinking that way in the first place. I guess I'd just, um, for, for my part, add a uh, warning against the passive voice. And this is something, obviously, for not just for your role-playing writing, but for all writing. Uh, George Orwell made uh, these, you know, as far as I'm concerned, unassailable argument that the passive voice is the voice of fascism. It's the voice of people who want to pretend that it was all decided by other people and not by them. The classic example, of course, being Nixon's mistakes were made when he talks about Watergate. It's like, no, you need a subject and you need a verb. Nixon made mistakes. I made mistakes. That is how you write uh, active, important uh, prose. And passive voice, while it sounds all uh, sort of, you know, um, all-knowing and omniscient and bureaucratic and in, it has other stylistic uh, qualities to it, which every now and again you, you need just for the flavor of, of the prose, uh, overall it uh, substitutes weakness for strength both uh, morally and verbally, and should be eschewed. Right, and you will find those as you already do your hunt for instances of to be, because, of course, they rely on to be. Uh, so when you find the puppies were run, run over, uh, you can then uh, spot that you've got that problem and then uh, put in uh, Jake ran over the puppies. That Jake? And uh, on puppy crushing, I, I think uh, we've summed up uh, what the whole notion of uh, getting your style in order entails and it's time to uh, move on to our uh, final hut of the podcast
aforementioned final hut once again takes us up the creaking stairs, past the mandalas and pentacles, into the dust-choked rooms of the consulting occultist, who this week is going to tell us about the fascinating figure of Black Herman. Ken, take it away. Uh, Black Herman is one of those wonderful characters from sort of American... Uh, he, he crosses all manner of, of, uh, of borders, from stage magic to conjure magic to spiritualism. He was, in fact, uh, possibly the most successful African-American uh, stage magician of all time. I, I guess that's sort of the core of his, uh, of his story. He was uh, born Benjamin Rucker and became the sort of apprentice to a, uh, a, another uh, magician called uh, Prince Herman. And the two of them had sort of a medicine show that uh, in order to get people to drink their uh, wonderful health and luck tonic, they would do magic tricks to show the sorts of power that the luck tonic would give you. And it became apparent as uh, Black Herman took over the business that... Uh, the magic tricks were the real draw, and that furthermore, the fortune telling and uh, and um, uh, and occult aspects of his magic show were an even bigger draw. And so, nothing loath, he set up a uh, sort of a mail order business and uh, did uh, sort of uh, sold lucky numbers in cities that had uh, numbers rackets, and uh, did a, a, a books about um, his own uh, magical powers. Wrote a perhaps overly uh, arabesque uh, autobiography that may or may not have a full and uh, complete uh, relationship with the truth. But either way, he sort of made of himself a, a great uh, celebrity and a very popular act. He sold out Marcus Garvey's Liberty Theater for two months. That's a venue of 4,000 people, which is not that shabby for someone who's basically doing cold reading and uh, levitating uh, beautiful ladies. So uh, Black Herman uh, continued on in, in glorious fashion. He apparently spent a little bit of time in Sing Sing because the feds were not happy with uh, uh, African-Americans who... Talk to other African Americans about how to free yourselves from slavery by whether by dint of an escape act or not. But uh, because the uh, the sentence was relatively short, he was able to come out and say uh, that he had walked out of the walls of Sing Sing, that they'd tried to arrest him seven times, and that each time he had confounded them. Oh, which is the the magical equivalent of uh, you know rapper street cred. Right, and as we have seen previously in consulting occultists, since he was circus people, or in this case medicine show people, he made a much better occultist than other people who are not. Um, his the sort of the capper of his bit was something called Black Herman's Private Graveyard, where he would uh, secure a plot of land outside the town where he was going to perform and have himself uh, buried in it uh, with, after, after having faked his own death uh, using um, uh, probably a, a wad of linen under his armpit to slow down his, his pulse rate, is what uh, the magician who wrote about Black Herman speculated. Uh, he And so they would, you know, the, the, the local doctor or medico would uh, feel his neck and say, oh my god, this man is dead, and they'd put him in a coffin and bury him underneath the soil. And of course, he would have previously dug out a tunnel. The coffin would have a, a panel in it that would slide away. He would climb out the tunnel, go on to the next town, and with his uh, confederates, work up all of the cold reading and other sort of psychic information that he could do in his show at the next town. And then when it came time for his, his show in the first town, he would come back, climb back into the coffin, and be dug up with great fanfare and ceremony, uh, come back to life and walk down to the theater and begin his show. It was a huge, uh, successful bit, uh, very, very popular. Um, uh, you know, no, no doubt the, the sensation of whatever wonderful border uh, state uh, village he had happened to perform in. And then in Louisville, Kentucky in 1934, he uh, died on stage probably from a heart attack. And the people stood around expecting him to come back to life because they'd heard that that's what he did. And it got so ridiculous that his, uh, his assistant, uh, Washington Reeves, uh, charged money to touch the corpse at the funeral just so that you could uh, make sure that Black Herman was really dead and would not, as he had uh, promised so often, come back to life. So uh, he is, a, he is a, a wonderful stage magician, first and foremost, and then also uh, used the intersection between stage magic and conjure magic, or hoodoo, to uh, set up, set himself up as a uh, magical entrepreneur. In addition to that, right, and in that he contrasts with Houdini, uh, who, of course, was working at the same time and established 
well, I don't know if he established, but certainly uh, cemented the uh, relationship between being a stage magician and being a skeptic, that uh, Houdini's uh, approach was that, of course, all of this charlatanry was charlatanry, and that he wanted to expose it that as being uh, a trick, whereas uh, Black Herman uh, was one of the few magicians of that era to say, yes, it's it's really magical, or at least there is an element of real magic on top of the illusionary stage magic. Yeah, because he also sold a book of um, uh, stage magic, uh, you know, where he showed how to do a lot of the tricks that he would do with the um, uh, handkerchiefs and the and the levitation and the levitating girls and things like that. Uh, the the promise being that one hour of rehearsal, uh, one hour of practice gives you two hours of wonder. Was the slogan of his magic <laughs> book that he sold? Um, so uh, Black Herman actually had sort of a foot in both camps. Both the this is just stage magic and you uh my aspirational young friend can become just like me black herman and he also had the level of he was uh descended from zulu chiefs and he was an immortal spirit and he was able to escape uh uh the the the, the, the slavers and the and the and the ku klux clansters and um uh use his magical conjure uh liquid to give you uh, not just you know physical health but also uh spiritual luck in all manner of other ways and i think that you know to take nothing away from houdini's tremendous accomplishment from coming up from sort of rural immigrant poverty in Wisconsin, Houdini nonetheless was white and had a lot of possible advantages in terms of, you know, feeding his family and making a living that uh, Black Herman uh, didn't really have. And so Black Herman could not have gone around being a skeptic and, uh, and then still, you know, been able to afford an awesome townhouse in Harlem and four cars. Right. And also there was the... Uh, there is much more mythic resonance to Black Herman escaping from chains, uh, and certainly one that he was very conscious of, that he was, uh, you know, as you suggest, he blended uh, the uh, magical with the uh, politically resonant, and that uh, made him uh, trouble, but it also uh, allowed him to uh, speak out because he was this sort of weird character who crossed the lines of entertainment and mysticism, uh, he was able to uh, give a voice to uh, things that other people were not necessarily free to do at that same time. And then certainly the people who are not African-American uh, performers were particularly interested in. I mean, I don't know anything against Houdini, but he certainly wasn't going around crusading for desegregation. Right. And it was something that, you know, played to the, the home community and created a, a sense of understanding that, uh, you know, you certainly wouldn't expect it. I guess the closest now to uh, political magicians uh, still comes out of the skeptic movement where you mm -hmm. have Penn and Teller who are uh, not only uh, uh, they're following the sort of skeptical tradition of uh, Houdini into their, uh, or at least uh, I guess it's, is it Penn or is it Teller who has the libertarian agenda? I'm well, Penn talks about it more, but right, I assume yes. that Teller doesn't. It wouldn't have been on the show if he didn't, right. or if he, or if he wasn't at least okay with libertarianism enough to cash the check, which is, of course, a, a core principle. Right, and it certainly makes sense for magicians uh, to be a, a libertarian, and again has, has something to do with uh, escaping from. Uh, uh, bonds and constraints. Mm -hmm. I, I, I would like to uh, mention that uh, Black Herman has one of the great slogans of all sorcery. I mean, you think um, uh, 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 do what you will shall be the whole of the law is a slogan? First of all, it's plagiarized from Rabelais, but Black Herman comes through every seven years? That's a great slogan. <laughs> that's that's like the Lucky Strike Green has gone to war of magic slogans, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, if, you know, if if I could have a shirt that said Black Herman comes through every seven years, I would baffle and mystify everyone who saw me. Uh, well, if if you go around asking people to make shirts, maybe somebody will. Maybe someone will. But but it it's, it, it it was basically because the the length of his his magical performance circuit was seven years, and so if you bought his book at his stage show, which is where a lot of people bought it, then you would know that in seven years you could come back to this very spot and once more he would emerge from the grave. But he, he liked seven because of the numerological um, uh, legends of it. There's a great um, story that I think is in his autobiography that the uh, Dutch Schultz got mad at him uh, for selling too many lucky numbers and, and messing with the numbers racket. And so Dutch Schultz sent uh, some mobsters around to mess with Black Herman. And of course, Black Herman used his magic to make them look stupid. And then... Um, According to Black Herman, I mean, in, he then had 
uh, the black uh, guys who worked at the hotel that these mobsters were staying at let him in, and he put a canister of, I forget if it's pig blood or red paint, but he put it inside their shower so that when they turned on their shower after unsuccessfully messing with Black Herman, uh, blood would spatter down on them and terrify them. And then, of course, uh, in at least his own telling, Dutch Schultz knew better than to mess with uh, the magic man. Right, and so this suggests a heightened version of Black Herman as a uh, character that you might play in a uh, 20s and 30s uh, occult game or a cast in fiction as the uh, problem-solving magician who, and you can decide for yourself whether he is... uh, uh, outwardly magical or inwardly magical or both. I've been co- uh, sort of collecting uh, black uh, pulp heroes uh, for a project that may or may not ever happen. But I got to say, Black Herman is definitely a headliner in my personal lineup of uh, of, of, of uh, uh, African American pulp heroes of the pulp era. Now, you you mentioned his uh, impact as a spiritualist. Did his various writings? Uh, survive into the general corpus of occult knowledge as uh, things from weird circus people sometimes do? I I don't know that it ever really penetrated uh, white people occultism. As we've mentioned before, uh, the the, the New Age movement in the United States, at least, and I suspect also in Britain, owes an awful lot to various uh, skeevy uh, white power fascists. And the degree to which they then cross-pollinate with the very vibrant tradition of African-American grimoires and uh, hoodoo and conjure magic is is certainly, it, it's not, there's very few places that you can point and say this aspect of the white New Age movement or the white occult movement in America is drawn directly from uh, conjure magic, except, of course, in the sort of, um, why, of course, I'm a Celtic, Sioux, Indian, shaman, and therefore I can use black people conjure magic because it, the, the, in this sort of syncretic notion that all spiritual traditions are the same spiritual tradition, you can use, you know, John the Conqueror root to summon Hermes or something. But in terms of the specifics, he did have a book uh, that um, uh, he wrote called um, Secrets of Magic, Mystery, and Ledger Domain that uh, came out uh, in, I think, 1925, or he actually probably didn't write it. He had a guy write it. But it was uh, republished in the 1930s by another uh, magical publisher uh, in 1938 after his death, and then it's still apparently for sale in botanicas and uh, various hoodoo supply shops uh, uh, or mail-order lists uh, all over the place. I I think I saw a copy online when I was um, doing research for this bit, and I, I think I saw it for sale. I didn't bother to look and see how much it cost. But there is a there there is a terrific uh, website on Hoodoo uh, run by Cat Ironwood, who used to run I guess it was First Comics back in the day, and it, it's very very complete. If you are interested in Hoodoo as a magical tradition, Black Herman specifically, I ran across in a book called Conjure Times: Black Magicians in America, meaning African American magicians, stage magicians, not black magicians in the sense of you know corpses and and Satan and such. And so the the idea of a uh, you know, the crypto-fascist roots of the New Age movement uh, gives us the idea of sort of what could be a long-running theme of a campaign centered around uh, a Black uh, Herman-like figure, which is that you could have the, you know, the covert battle for uh, desegregation occur as a uh, manifestation of a a occult proxy war between the uh, white power extremists and our hero, uh, Black Herman and his uh, coterie of assistants. Yeah, Black Herman could either be your, your Gandalf figure who uh, emerges to um, uh, sort of get the, the player characters going, or he could be in a, in a more high-powered game. He could be one of your League of Extraordinary African-American badasses or hoodoo badasses that uh, go around uh, thwarting uh, the crypto-fascist New Age with their blonde aliens from Venus. I should mention, I guess in this uh, context, a game that I, I've not read, so I don't know that it's super good, but it's by the same guy who did the terrific Tibet uh, role-playing game from Vajra Enterprises. Uh, it's called Hoodoo Blues, and it's a game, uh, one assumes, centered on uh, the African-American magical experience in the South. And I think that regardless of whatever other game you decide to run it in, picking that up from uh, drive through or your local game store would not be a bad idea in this context. Well, uh, ending the podcast on a plug is always a salutary uh, note, so... Let us uh, once again uh, close up our various uh, 
huts, segments, and vistas, and we will uh, recombine our efforts for uh, another week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Drive Through RPG, Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, and Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Excavate us from the car park of your heart at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff. <laughs>